had a big head, rounded ears, six feet in the body maybe, with a very, very long tail, very muscular build. As it was walking, it was, it was still looking at me, and that's when I really panicked. It looked at me and thought, oh, oh, there's a human there, I'm not scared. You say, well, I've seen this big cat, and some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. I heard this growl behind me. Nothing like a dog growl. And just like anything else in life, you're sat on your own there. I don't care who you are, how brave you are. Something like that will put the shivers up your spine. As she was walking before the cub came out, she flicked this tail. She literally flicked it in the air. And I simply could not believe what I was seeing. It was the most extraordinary feeling. It threw its head back, he said, and it made this sort of round. But when you actually realise that there are big cats living in Britain, it changes everything. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. Why are unofficial big cats being seen, and could these cats even be naturalising without us knowing? If you've had a big cat encounter in Britain and would like to discuss it, email me at rick at bigcatconversations.com. You can find other episodes on the website bigcatconversations.com. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of Big Cat Conversations. For this show, we have a special guest, Simon Townsend, from Australia. So we have a whole episode looking at the big cat scene in Australia, and we can compare and contrast all this with the issues in Britain. And as a quick introduction to Simon Townsend, he jointly runs the website Big Cats Victoria. He is joint author of the book on Australian big cats, Snarls from the Tea Tree, and he's involved in the coming documentary on big cat research called The Hunt, We've put web links for each of those, the website, the book and the documentary, under episode 10 on our website. Simon is one of Australia's most experienced big cat researchers. He focuses on the southern state of Victoria, but he also gets drawn into the national picture. And Simon and I have been emailing each other on big cat issues for nearly 10 years, and this is actually the first time I've spoken with Simon directly, so I'm really chuffed he can join us. Simon, hello and welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Hi there, Rick. Yes, I'm, and I'm really glad to have this chance to talk with you and also to your, your own listening public. Great. And we know that we have an audience in Australia. And thank you for spreading the word there. And thanks to all our Australian listeners. And I ought to say we get uh, New Zealand listeners as well. It's interesting. They seem to get credible Black Panther type reports. First of all, Simon, I know this is going to be about Australia, but in episode four, we mentioned Jim Corbett, the great hunter and tracker in India last century. He wrote about the leopards and the tigers he was tracking. And you emailed me afterwards saying, well done for mentioning Jim Corbett. His books are very inspirational. And you've got a family tale about him, which would be really nice to have at the outset of the programme. It was only a short interlude, but it's important in the sense that you got an idea of the nature of the man. My, uh, my mother-in-law was a 
student in a place called Nainital in northern India, quite close to the Garwal and the Nepalese border. In her school, one of the things that was considered a great treat was to have a slideshow of some sort. Usually it might be the British fishing industry or something like that. <laughs> but uh, for once, uh, Jim Corbett put in an appearance and he showed a lot of slides that he'd made himself of various wildlife, but especially birds. And uh, Jim was a great mimic and he also imitated these animals. He was already quite famous at the stage, very well known for his feats in killing uh, man-eaters that had been causing havoc in various rural communities in that part of the world. She described him as tall and austere. And if you ever see photographs of him, that's exactly how he appears, tall and austere. Very tough man. He was quite capable of impressing and almost frightening the girls <laughs> with his ability to copy everything from the grunting of a leopard to the low growls of a tiger, right through to all the smaller birds, cooing of doves, sounds of miners and minivets and minyas, all of these birds that were, you know, reasonably abundant mm. in those days. He could copy them beautifully. Young people in those days also had a bit of a rough idea about wildlife anyway. He impressed them mightily. And my mother-in-law has never forgot it. And she's 95 now. I've only got to scratch the surface and she comes up with the same story every time. Yeah, let's jump in straight to your encounter, your own sighting, if we may, because it's interesting to see what triggered your deep interest in the big cats in Australia. My interest was a bit like schoolboy train spotters originally. I was interested in the subject because it was in the newspapers occasionally and it appealed to me as a young naturalist. And I mean young, we're talking 15 or 16. And I was busy cutting things out of papers and making scrapbooks of all this information, not really knowing how to set up proper files at that stage. When I had a chance to investigate a sighting firsthand, this is in the winter of 1973 when I was 17 years old. A friend of mine, he was a school teacher. He had a cousin who was working for the Melbourne Water Board. And uh, in those days, men were men. They were pretty tough chaps. And they were clearing scrub by hand using billhooks from a conduit, which was a massive six-foot-wide pipe that ran from the Maroondah Dam down towards various other holding reservoirs much closer to Melbourne. Now, what had happened was that these men were clearing scrub by hand and a, for want of a better term, they called it black panther, but as far as I'm concerned, it's a melanistic leopard, dashed out of cover and literally growled at them very deeply and barred their way. Now, these are big, tough fellas and they've got medieval quality lethal weapons in their hands, but they fled. They got a terrible fright. When they dashed off, one of these fellas was a cousin to my school teacher friend. Once he'd found out about this, he said to myself and a good pal, would you like to go and investigate it? Of course, we never thought we'd see anything, but we still went as boys do, you know, clapped out old Holden motor car with no floor in it. You can imagine the safari wagon and how we traveled up there. And of course, we're chatting and talking as we're walking and walking. And we covered a few miles until we finally got to the spot where the scrub had been cleared along the pipeline and you tell it where it was full fresh cut. We continued further along to a little tiny plateau, maybe three or four hundred metres from the actual area where the confrontation had occurred and we went up onto the little plateau. As we surmounted it, I was in the lead, and as we went up, lo and behold, there is a melanistic leopard, which actually paused for a moment and then gave us a really dirty look. I can tell you it was not a friendly face. It wasn't happy at being disturbed. And it belly crawled in a very rapid motion across maybe 20 metres of clearing 
and disappeared into the bush on the other side. And it didn't make a sound, including when it actually hit the bush, did not make a sound. Now, we were frozen in our boots when we saw that. But I mean, what can you do? Cameras were primitive then and there was no way known you could have taken 10 minutes to get organised to take a photograph. It just wouldn't happen. So we went home and tried to talk to people about it. Nobody was interested. They said, oh, you're just making it up, you know, and so on and so on. And in my case, um, I got rather a drubbing from my father, being a professional scientist. He didn't like supposition. You had to have facts. And the facts in this case meant you had to have a specimen or you had to be, you know, a photograph or some such. So I just stayed quiet about it. he was around, but I started getting serious about collecting data. So I engaged, of all things, and my tiny stipend that I had, engaged a newspaper agency to save records from all of the major papers in Australia on the subject. And that was the start of me learning how to file things properly and keep proper records. The subsequent year, 1974, I'd taken a position at Melbourne Zoo as a keeper. And so I used to quite often take my sandwich at lunchtime and go and sit down by the melanistic leopards we had there to try and get some sort of inspiration. And the thing that struck me is that they're not enormous animals. They weighed about as much as me in those days when I was a skinny, rakish kid. And they were not massive. And yet when you looked at their forearms, or forelegs, I should say, they were incredibly thick. The nature of the neck of the male is so powerful. It makes perfect sense that they can carry prey twice their weight easily and take it up trees and so on, as they need to occasionally. And if you like, the biology of the animals started to gel with me. I could not find enough reading material. I was even given access to the Zoological Board of Victoria's library at the zoo on my days off. I mean, the zoo saw some value in it, both for me as an employee, and also it, it put me in a better position to make an argument. I'd learned at that stage, don't speak out without being able to back yourself up right from the start. You learn that the hard way. You might be all enthusiastic, but that doesn't get you anywhere enthusiasm other than you become an easy target for people who are knockers. So that's pretty much my story of what started it. And remember, that's a long time ago. Yeah. Now, I'm not particularly good with technology, as I know you're aware. (laughs) (laughs) By the same token, I decided that the best way to try and gain information was to create a website and use it to give people sources of literature that might interest them if they're interested in the subject, good literature, the best stuff. It's paid off enormously. The amount of money I must have spent on fuel bills, exploring the various sighting reports and investigating kills, I decided to stop keeping records. It was too (laughs) embarrassing. But it's probably cheaper than a life on the golf course. (laughs) Well, damn sight more interesting, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Can we go back to the form and weight and muscularity of the black leopard, the melanistic leopard? Whenever I receive a report, I always send a very polite reply to ask, in size, did it resemble an animal breed that you're familiar with, say a breed of dog? And invariably, they come back with Yes, very large, as in a German Shepherd, or somewhat smaller, as in a Labrador size. But remember just how heavy those animals are too. If you've ever tried to pick up an injured Labrador, I mean, just that breaks your back. It's easier picking up bags of feed rather than to pick up a dog of that weight. Yes, I personally have a male black Labrador, and I sometimes have to carry him over a stile where the fence you know, doesn't allow him to sneak <laughs> through. So I know he's an absolute pain to get over over a hedge or something. Yeah, Can we 
also, though, talk about the the ones that don't quite fit that description, but seem to be certainly a black panther anyway, and certainly way bigger than a domestic cat or a large feral cat, and capable of taking down a deer or a wallaby or kangaroo in your metric. Yep. We think in Britain that there may be another large black cat that's not a melanistic leopard. And I think from reading material in Australia, hearing witnesses and seeing a few video clips, you may have the same. It may not be the same animal, but there seems to be another big black cat in both our countries. Now, it's scientifically interesting whether we have melanistic leopards that are adapting into new, perfectly suitable environments. And it's scientifically fascinating whether we've got melanistic leopards and mutant moggies or whatever they are. Is that right? Is, is that how you're seeing it from Australia too? I, I, the scene here is really made up of two species that are without a doubt present. They're reasonably rare. One of them, of course, is Felis or Puma concolor, yep. the, the Puma. Yeah. And, of course, the other is the melanistic leopard. Yes. But it, things are complicated by a high likelihood of feral cats being black, but the difference in their body size, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I, I have shot hundreds of feral cats in the bush over years, and I'm yet to have come on one that weighs as much as a, a medium young fox, mm. to be honest with you. That's, yes. It just hasn't happened to me. So no, none of those, So Simon, none of those would have predated and eaten a wallaby, for example, none of those well, feral cats? actually they can. Ah. Um, one of the curious things about feral cats is that individuals, especially toms, seem to have a capacity, not all, that's for sure, mm. but some can kill animals bigger than themselves. But that means now a common macropod here in the southeast of the nation is the wallaby bicolor, which is a black wallaby, as we call it. The bite from a cat, a feral cat, depending on how big that particular animal is, can be quite devastating. Mm. They've got fish hooks on all their feet. They can pull things down. Now, a, a large wallaby, a large black wallaby, treat, treat one as nonsense, a feral cat. Mm. But three-quarter grown or a half-grown or a naive one would be a very different story. And also, they regularly kill the smallest of the macropods or kangaroos, potaroos, rat kangaroos, betongs, etc., yes. which are about the same size as the hare. All of these animals are easily killed. And curiously enough, some feral cats are so skillful that they can actually catch a hare in an open field by stalking it to within a very few metres, then a quick rush before the hare can get going. Yeah. Now, we all know how fast a hare can move, but these chaps are capable. But not every feral cat is capable of it. It's just some. The thing is, when I talk to wildlife buffs, professionals especially, who are still in the business, of course, of destroying feral cats whenever they can, and in fact it's part of their duties, nobody has come up with a particularly large one. We estimate the number of feral cats uh, the CSIRO Wildlife Research Team do, it being around 6 to 12 million feral cats. And you can imagine the effect they have on the biomass of small indigenous animals, that's birds, mammals, and particularly reptiles. Yes. Feral cats don't change their proportions. This is what people aren't aware of. Is there a difference in the ecosystem effects of feral cats and the, the melanistic leopards and the pumas, do you think? Do you think that the pumas and the melanistic leopards are potentially doing some benefit if they're culling wallabies and the different types of kangaroos you have? The ecological implications are not at all well known should such large predators be proven to exist. Now, I don't like fence-sitting, 
But what I have to do is to be dispassionate, despite the fact that I've seen something and I've been collecting evidence and data for a long time, particularly anecdotal accounts, but also remains of kills. I That's like one hat that I wear. And the other hat is I must be totally dispassionate yeah. if I'm going to make representation to government or to anybody in yeah. relation to this phenomenon. Yeah, you reserve judgment. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Now, the theory is that it's quite possible that what I saw was a one-off occurrence of an individual animal who's long since dead, and it's never to be repeated. You know what I mean? That's yes. that's, a, a, that's yeah. a it's a really messy area, but philosophically, I've got to look at that as being a possible. However, most people that I speak to, they're quite wholesome. They've been shocked. They've been offended by what they've seen because it doesn't fit into their normal realm of reality. Mm. And they're very brave to come and talk to somebody about it. Yes. You know, to contact on the web and then we, we might have a phone interview or I might visit them at home. I used to do an awful lot of that years mm. ago, mm. but only by invitation, of course. Mm. But the point was you develop a rapport with people and you know they're not lying. But sometimes they make mistakes. I had a classic with a, a lady who thought she'd seen a thylacine, a Tasmanian tiger. And she says, and it comes into my garden every night and has a drink. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you say? I said, really? Gee, man, I'd, I'd love to see it. She says, oh, you don't have to worry about that. I've got a photograph of it. <laughs> and she had a, a great big clamshell with a dripping tap in it <laughs> and next to it standing the mangiest fox you've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and I had to let it down really gently. And I said, oh, that's quite unique. You know, I've never seen one quite like that before. Yes, well, I mean, if we're going to get onto thylacines, we'll be here for another hour. I'm sure that's yeah. of interest to some of our listeners. And I know there are plenty of people on the case in Tasmania and in Victoria. But, oh, my uh, word, there are. Yeah, we, we better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we go back to people's encounters? I was going to ask you what proportion you find are credible. I personally, like you, can spot somebody, I think, who hasn't got it right, whether they're lying, which is rare, or exaggerating or have just sort of made a mistake. But I reckon it's 80 to 90% of the reports I get and some of my, my partners in crime on this get are, you know, 80 to 90% are credible and consistent. Is that the same with you or a bit I'm, different? I'm very much inclined to agree with you it is around that at least yeah uh, hoaxing's rare but people do make mistakes with identification yes and, but uh, it's rarely the, about the, dog or cat it's, it's often about scale i don't think people miscite dogs in the way the skeptics think they do the movement's so different the form is actually quite different oh totally one of the things about feral cats that's noteworthy is, is when somebody might bring me a photograph or a, a tiny piece of video they might show up in the media the media people get on to me and say, well, what do you think? And I say, well, I can tell you right now it's feral cat. They say, how do you know that? I said, look at the thickness of the paws. Look at the shortness of the tail. Mm. Look at how fluffy it is. I'm sorry, but that doesn't add up to being a melanistic leopard. Then, of course, I've got to explain melanism and what the word panther actually means as a generic term and all that sort of yes, stuff. Yes, sure. But you do have to hold your convictions, don't you, and have some standards and rigour. Of course, the media don't have an interest, really, in worrying whether it's a big cat or not. I mean, for the media, the, even the debate about it is going to be interesting. And now you can get email comments on the website. That just is all grist to the mill for most newspapers and websites, isn't it? It just fuels low-level aggression, and that's what they want. 
Can we just go back to melanistic leopards and your observations? I know the observations, like my observations, are really indirect through the eyes of the witness, but we both Mm. had so many witness reports to sieve through. I think we can get a bit of a picture. Do you feel you're getting reports of fit, healthy, confident, properly wild individuals that are not inbred? And also, do you think you're seeing any signs of adaptation or or, are they pretty pure melanistic leopards? just like they would be in Malaysia or Java, for example? I don't pretend to be an expert at all, Mm. but by the same token, I'm reasonably well-read and well-connected with leopard people. And my own experience also indicated to me that that long, lithe, muscular animal that I saw at close range was without a doubt a melanistic leopard. Now, I'm feeling that there's no need for these animals to change their habits. They're like broken country, They like a mixture of timber and invariably they will hunt at the edge of the timber because this is where I find kills, particularly of sheep that have been killed in the paddock and dragged back into cover Mm -hmm. to be eaten. And also you have situations where you might find a particular kangaroo that might have been injured along the roadside, then killed, throttled with a really deep, hard throat bite Mm -hmm. and then have its heart, lungs and liver removed, which is an absolute hallmark of leopard. Yeah, they, they go for these intensely rich organs for preference. And I've seen this many, many times. I've started keeping proper photographic records. But on top of it these days, I've also now got a particularly good DNA laboratory at the University of Canberra. And the lady in charge there, Diane Gleason, she is prepared to accept our specimens at no cost to us to analyse them, but she is very, very fierce about the quality of the specimen, that it not be adulterated. Mm -hmm. And it's so difficult to get a specimen. And in this case, we're looking for areas that might have spittle on them, that is, you know, the edges of bite wounds. Yes. And so on. So you're swabbing for the saliva of the culprit predator. But with foxes being so prevalent, and of course, there's a lot of different species of corvid, ravens and crows here, mm. it's almost impossible to get a specimen that hasn't been adulterated. And she gets a bit fierce, I can tell you, when you spend a lot of money sending her material and she'll come back with, do a better job next time, you know, yes. <laughs> type yeah. responses. No, but that... rightly so, she hasn't got time to waste. Yeah. She's going to be using her equipment. We have had not just foxes taken and seen to be taken. There are people who have witnessed this. We've had scenarios here where dogs have been taken off verandas. It's not common, but it has happened. As Um, it does in other countries where leopards and pumas exist. I have a particularly graphic photograph taken in 2008 of a foal, a standard bred foal. It was worth 10 grand, actually, that was killed and eaten out overnight. And it was a foal that was uh, several weeks old and at the frisky stage, you know, Mm. it it would run around its its mother and and carry on. It had been killed by a bite to the back of the head that was so brutally hard that the eyes popped out of their sockets. Mm. Then the animal was completely eaten out. All of the flesh was gone. And also, curiously enough, the the stomach was eaten, but then it would have been full of milk, which makes sense. Mm. And it might have been the work of two predators. And it's from an area where so-called black panthers have been fairly regularly seen. 11.30 at night, it was alive and well. By eight o'clock next morning, it was bones. And its mother had broken through two or three fences to get away. That is very rare. A mare will stand and defend her foal and make a big fuss. She bolted. She was that frightened by what had happened. And it's a stud, obviously, standard bred stud. 
and all of the horses had gathered at the furthest reach of the property, well over a kilometre away from where this action had taken place. She had been in a stable that had an open yard and the foal was killed in the yard. Now, that to me is one of the most graphic occurrences that I've personally attended and seen and photographed, And but pre when I was in a position to get DNA testing done, which is a, which is a real shame. Sure. Main types of stakeholders that you come across in Britain who are really disadvantaged by the presence of big cats are some isolated cases of stables where horses are very stressed or sometimes there's a direct impact on a foal or a horse and some isolated situations of sheep farming. And that's very difficult to deal with because you do want to help those people and there's limited help you can provide. Although I would like to get to a situation where they can have a compensation payment if we can actually demonstrate to a reasonable degree that it is big cat related and it could be that that compensation payment fund comes from a non-government source to make it easier. From a conservation point of view because Britain up until the tail end of the last ice age had seriously large predators and in fact right up until the uh, post-Roman Britain Mm. still had bears and lynx and so on and wolves. If you like the British situation with big cats is actually not as complicated as it is here, where we've got a whole yeah. new ball game with these placental yeah. carnivores. That is a real catch. Yes. As we were saying earlier, you don't really know the full ecosystem effects. It could be that they're not too bad, because if they're mainly culling kangaroos and wallabies, that's not too much of a, a hit to take, is it? Well, one of my one of my colleagues made a point, though. Black wallaby numbers across the state, which used to be the most abundant macropod in world timbered country, it seems to have declined somewhat in the last 25 to 30 years. And also wombats appear to be reducing for no given reason. I put it down to selective hunting pressure. It's a possible. This is only theoretical, of course. But the potential for juvenile wombats, like a corgi in size and weight, and a big wombat is is one solicker of an animal. They're quite solid and well able to look after themselves. They go to ground like a badger does, no time flat. But a juvenile that's sunning itself or they play, they set themselves up to be a prey item and wombats do appear to be on the decline. That's not particularly scientific, but it's observations made by naturalists I know along those lines. These prey items we're talking about are herbivores, aren't they? So if it's a really fresh predation and you feel it's possibly cat-related, do you often get the witness saying the stomach's still there and that they've left the stomach because it's full of grass and they can't touch yes, it? Yes, the, 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 gut, the guts are pulled out. So, some of these uh, cats are messy feeders, almost dog-like in the fact that they splurge, but they invariably pull out the gut and gut contents and leave it a little way away from their actual kill. Mm. I found that in the main, there's a reasonably set pattern. And also the fact that if the kill is carried any distance, it's not wild dogs, it's not dingoes, it's not foxes. They tend to eat where they are and they don't have a very large stomach, so it doesn't take them long to fill up. But with the cats, they can really get a quantity of material into them. I've seen this time and again. Ribs sheared off close to the spine. Heart, lungs and liver gone first if you disturb the kill at any stage. And then the, the muscle might yeah. go that day or the next day. They make a good show of it. They don't waste anything. Mm. You've got to spend time with the carcasses. I know it sounds weird. Yes. But spend Literally sit down with it and look at it and think it through. It's a matter of logic with what happens. 
one of the things that's very rare in relation to this sort of thing is tracks. People that know nothing about tracks and tracking and game believe that it's very easy and to find tracks and follow them. Well, I've got news for you. You know, it doesn't work that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> at, at all. I've seen probably two sets of tracks in my early days that were indisputably leopard. And the curious thing is, in those days, I was poor as a church mouse, of course, as a youngster, and uh, I had no camera, no means of preserving the track, but I learned how to measure it. And also learned what to look for, the distinctive plantar pad and the slightly different length of the two central toes in the actual forepart of the, the track, etc. And that's ingrained in me, always looking for that. But so rare to ever see anything that's even an indication. Just as a quick aside, when you were talking about personal experiences, about 10 years ago, I was investigating a series of stock hills in South Australia, in the limestone country in the southeast of South Australia, where you've got the Barossa Valley and all of, all of the fancy wineries. I was with a, my companion, John Turner, who's a pretty good bushman. He and I were looking at this stock killing that was going on at a, at a given property. And our idea was we were going to check around water holes to look for tracks where some beast might have come in for water through the evening. We followed a sheep path through. It was a summer. It was fairly dry. Not much cover around in, in the pasturage. We, we went up there to our water holes checked around the water holes. The temperature was really starting to rise. So we soaked our hats and shirts and our packs, decided to make our way back for a siesta, back to the shearing shed where we were camped. When we were coming back, there was a dead sheep right beside the path that we'd walked up a few hours earlier. Now, this dead sheep had been killed by a throat bite. It had been opened up and its heart, lungs and liver were gone. And when we put our hands inside it, it was still warm. So we probably just disturbed the cat that had killed it in broad daylight as it had wandered along the sheep path. We decided we'd set up our very primitive game cameras we had in those days near the carcass that night. So we went back up late in the afternoon when the temperature had dropped a bit. As we came back, the carcass is gone. There were distinctive drag marks where it had been dragged into cover in broad daylight. It had been dragged into cover. It was a, a big fat ewe. It was pregnant ewe that had made a real feast of it. So we set the cameras up, but there was no result, unfortunately. There wasn't that much meat left. I think our scent on the cameras had probably been enough to put it off. These sorts of experiences have been my lot for a long time. Close, but not close enough. And the other thing is you need time, a lot of time if you're going to be in the field. And you need to be reasonably well organised with your victuals and water and everything else. In Britain even, I mean, you've got enough wild places there to mean that if you're going to do field work, you've got to be totally self-reliant. You've got to have everything with you. And so you can not move about too much and you can keep the countryside under observation. It's pretty much the same way here, but except it's on a larger scale. Yeah, I mean, Jim Corbett said it all, didn't he? Really patient, think like a cat, act like a cat, and be as patient as a cat in in all your stealthy work to catch up with them. Well, he used that's how he was successful with what he did. He anticipated the animals' moves, and he'd come across some animals that were quite foolish and others that were always one step ahead of him. They changed their plans constantly. Yeah. But that was all about having the time. And of course, we now have the technology, but I think we need to use the technology wisely. You can't just stuff a load of trail cameras out and hope to get results. It'd be nice to have one other witness report recounted that obviously somebody else has given to you. Could we have one of a puma 
type cat uh, yes, to, to change yes. from the black ones. Could, could you go through one of the most vivid, interesting Puma Concola reports you've had? I have the country where Puma seem to be truly ensconced is the Grampian mountain ranges here in Victoria, obviously named after the Scottish Grampians, which is a massive sandstone massif in Western Victoria. And it, it really is a big area. It also has enormous number of eastern and western grey kangaroos, redneck wallabies, black wallabies, and a substantial population of red deer and also of feral goats. So there's a plethora of species for predators to eat. And it is seriously rugged. I mean, every year people are lost in there and they die of thirst. It's their own foolishness. If you stick to the tracks, you're fine. But the minute you get smart and start wandering, you're in real trouble. But sometimes mm-hmm. this has led to people bumping into puma at close range. There was a lady recently, just on the outskirts of the Grampians, who sent me a series of photographs of where she had seen one at close range. Now, she went to a lot of trouble with her photographs and a little map that she drew showing that she was genuine and and interested. I rang her up and we had a chat. And what she'd seen was a roadkill roo on the side of the road. And as she was approaching it in her own car from a distance, she saw something walk out, four-legged with a long tail, walk out to the carcass and as she drew closer she saw that it was tawny coloured and she probably got to within about 50 metres of it and the animal had frozen by the carcass it was obviously investigating the smell of the carrion and so the cat stood there and she pulled up she didn't attempt to drive right up to it and the cat turned around and trotted back exactly the way it came now the series of photographs obviously showed me the dead kangaroo the exact location, the nearest landmarks, so I could monitor the spot if I chose, and also the trail, what we would call a wallaby path, that it had gone up to get out of the way. But it hadn't panicked, it had just left, didn't want to be disturbed. The most peripheral country where these animals exist, they understand where people go, where people come from, they've got people sewn up. And in this particular case, it wasn't panicking, it just left. And I found that an intriguing and well-researched piece of sighting material. And she had nothing to gain whatsoever. And I appreciate those sorts of reports because they're the building blocks of trying to build an idea of where animals exist and what animals we've got. Yes. And of course, in that kind of landscape, in that kind of really rugged remote terrain, there aren't going to be many sightings anyway. Any cats there have got the place to themselves, haven't they, without humans being able to bump into them or see them? I have sort of a vision of a holiday weekend when you get a lot of Melbourne people travelling up into that region, making a lot of noise and carrying on. I can almost see all of the animals in the bush quietly trekking further up the hill, just waiting because they know they're all going to go home again, you know. Yes. Sure, yeah, yeah. One lady rang me up one night saying, look, there was something strange in her garden. I've had crazy calls before. And she was some distance away, about um, 30 miles away. She said, well, what do I do? I said, well, keep the door locked for a start. It was not a black panther. It was a puma, but in my region where pumas are virtually unheard of. But the way she described its behaviour, she said it was bigger than a big dog, yes. She said the tail was like a python in that it was long and it was the same thickness right through. And I said, what was it doing? She said, it was lying in my vegetables and it kept rolling around in them. So I checked out the vegetables and everything was flattened. And of course, what I searched for was hair samples, didn't find any. 
It was the visceral feel of looking out the kitchen window and seeing an animal that was oblivious to her rolling in the vegetables. I've seen a, a tomcat do that when he's feeling a bit aggro or frisky or whatever. And she said it rolled on its back and it lay on its back and stretched and then kept on rolling over and over and over. It had probably found something that it liked. Cats do respond to scents. Maybe she even had some catnip there. Who knows? And I planted it all over my place in the hope that it might bring one in one day. Yes, other yeah. people have done that in Britain. Yeah, certainly. We ought to quickly cover off the origins, the suspected origins in Australia. And I presume you think, like me, that they're similar to the suspected origins in Britain and that these are releases from collections, releases from guarding animals, releases from military mascots and releases from trading items. They were all those kinds of things discarded, yeah? There may have been some in, uh, intentional releases, uh, though that's supposition on my part, but knowing the sorts of people who had private menageries, some of the older blue blood families, particularly in the Western District, Nothing would surprise. They had money people could only dream of. They were wealthy beyond all reasonable means because of wool, fine wool, merino wool, was worth literally a pound a pound for many years. And it was the backbone of the rural economy. And just before that, of course, there was the gold rush in the central highlands of Victoria which created many, many millionaires mm. in a very short order who, of course, took up big runs in the Western District because that was the thing you did. They built most amazing mansions, you know, full households. They might have 20 staff, um, the whole shooting box, so to speak. There was stables and almost village-based at the end of the garden. That continued right up until the Second World War. Now, these people did what they liked and could get away with what they liked. And yes, there were private menageries that contained all sorts of exotic animals. That's one part. Of course, letting them go would make a lot of sense when the bottom fell out of the rural industries. People just didn't care anymore. Now, that's one thing. But the one that really is interesting is what David Waldron, my co-author of Snails from the Tea Tree, researched, was the sheer number of accidents with travelling menageries. This is, remember, pre-cinema. The circus, travelling menagerie, was a big deal. And they were all over the countryside. And yes, they did have accidents. We had a classic here in Geelong, not that long ago, when we had a, an Indian elephant uh, escape from a circus that was down near what we call the Common, which is actually a vast swamp. And for a week, there was an elephant bathing and showering itself in the Common delightful but a bit dangerous when he decided to change locations <laughs> yeah. david o'reilly the late david o'reilly in his wonderful book savage shadow documents this in western australia that's and right it's a marvelous book i'd recommend that to anybody it's a really important book too because david o'reilly was an investigative journalist he knew his stuff he knew how to approach people and gather data Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. The Western Australian situation sort of parallels southeastern Australia too. And there are continuing reports of both puma and black leopard in that place too. Now, people will say, why black leopard? Why not spotted leopards? I can tell you why. The only reason you'd bring black leopards here is they bought a better price. These animals were actually sold at times, mm. auctioned at pubs. They were status symbols. If you'd struck it big on the gold and you'd made, say, 10,000 pounds, 
you were king, then one of the things you'd do is you'd surround yourself, well, first of all, with ladies of the night and all the booze that you could buy for your friends. And then, of course, something to show off. And how long that would last is curious because we had a, an example here where they were auctioning a tiger in um, the old British hotel in Geelong, which has unfortunately now been demolished. The tiger got away. It mauled a fellow in the street. And of course, in the, the humour of the 1880s or whenever, they said that it didn't matter. It was only a Chinaman. You can see the sort of boisterous landscape of people and things and money being spent like there was no tomorrow. And animals would come into this country freely. There was no stop gaps or guards about what came in until quite late in the piece. You could have anything you wanted if you could pay for it. And it was always considered that black leopards were the ideal leopard because they were meant to be fiercer. And you're not far from Java and Malaysia, which is the key source of them, and they breed on black. You won't get spotted leopards from a, a, that, that's a, exactly a right. source of black leopards. So the biology adds up and the human psyche contribution also makes sense and also that the amount of money that was available at the time. Do you think some of these animals were used as alternative guard dogs, particularly if people were mining? Uh Yes. Uh, the Chinese apparently used to like to buy some to keep other people off their claims. But I don't know how mean they might be in feeding the thing. They might spend big on it. And if it's getting a bit touchy whenever you go near it, you might just release it. But I still think the travelling menagerie scenario is the, the one that really carries the greatest weight. We're going to do Word of the Week this week with Simon's help. So, Simon, help us out, please. Can you give us a one-minute briefing on Macropod? Macropod literally means big foot. Nothing to do with yetis, of course. What (laughs) we're talking about is marsupial herbivores that have large hind feet. And they can be as small as rabbits, as in rat kangaroos, a little bit larger, the size of a hare and a, a betong all the way through to eastern grey or red kangaroos, which can be much taller than a man and much heavier and incredibly muscular and strong. So it covers that whole range of animals, the word macropod. But the important thing about macropods, especially the eastern grey kangaroo, it is a major food source for our mystery predator here in southeastern Australia. And the Western Grey Kangaroo in Western Australia is also a primary food source for the big cats that appear to live over there. The Eastern Greys and the Western Greys, do they have to be culled to keep the numbers in check by people? It's a contentious point, actually. They, they certainly get quite a lot of pasturage, but they can be a nuisance in other ways, especially in vineyards. If you like, there's a true comparison to be made with the deer in Great Britain. Mm. They're effectively the Australian deer equivalent. And yes, there can be a problem with them. The culling of them ostensibly is for control purposes, but in reality, and I know because I've been a professional wildlife controller, but by the same token, there is a not a substantial, but a very sound industry based on what we would call eco-meats these days, of utilising these animals for human consumption. And it is quite a business, and it's also an export business, and also internal. Finally, kangaroo has become a major part of diet in Australia. Personally, I think it's a healthy situation. I don't think that saying that kangaroos are a real pest is the right way to look at it. They should be looked at as a resource. 
One of the troubles with kangaroos is, of course, without some sort of predation, whether it be from people or from dingoes, their population can actually denude a particular landscape. And it means that smaller marsupials that are much less abundant lose cover and feed. So there has to be a balance achieved. That requires hands-on management. It also means that we've got to rethink our attitude towards the native dingo, which is really a form of wolf, Asian wolf. Mm. It's another ball game completely to this, but it's something that's very close to my heart. Can we cue the marsupial lion? No longer with us. A Pleistocene animal. Let's have just a quick briefing on that, if we may. The marsupial lion, or Thylaco leo, it was actually a highly refined species of possum that had become predatory and capable of having a crushing bite. The actual incisors are relatively small, but the carnassial, or cheek teeth, premolars, are massive, bigger than bolt cutters. They could bite through any bone. One bite from such a predatory animal would have been absolutely lights out for whatever was bitten. It would be a massive wound that would hemorrhage immediately. Now, they were here concurrently with the first Indigenous Australians to get here for maybe 20,000 years or more, but they appear to have disappeared within the last 30,000 years completely. There's been no evidence that they persist. It'd be interesting if they did. (laughs) In view of the fact that these animals were arboreal, they climbed, judging by their claws, they were capable climbers, and they would conceivably drop out of trees onto their prey items below. Nobody knows, of course, really. That's conjecture, but it's interesting conjecture. Yeah, it's just interesting to know in the evolution of predator-prey relationships in Australia, you did have a predator like that. And I'm guessing it would be the closest equivalent on the Earth now would be a fossa in Madagascar, an arboreal aggressive predator. Yes, that's possible. Fossas, I've never seen one, but I've seen film of them. And by golly, they can move in the trees. Mm. They're very fast and, of course, highly aggressive. They're prey items are up to the same size as themselves. Yeah. Yeah, marsupial lion would have been bigger than the fossil, would have been a, quite a big creature, wouldn't it? There were marsupial lions that would in body weight have been bigger than big leopards. Gosh, okay. Yeah, that would be an interesting thing to have in the landscape. <laughs> the other side of it, though, is there were a plethora of other carnivores, including even a carnivorous macropod at one stage, Gosh. right through the Pleistocene. We had several species of thylacine or Tasmanian, well, we call it Tasmanian tiger, but thylacines resemble, let's say, a marsupial wolf. Mm-hmm. And some of the smallest ones were the size of fox terriers, and some of the largest were bigger than German shepherds. And I mean big, solid predators and they are pursued predators they would basically run their prey to ground till it had dropped like a wolf behavior very like a wolf in their own way or maybe it's wolves that are like thylacines Ah, yeah yes yeah 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 okay that's splendid thank you for that bit of sort of ecological history could we come on to the people side of the equation in the way that you look for evidence Mm -hmm. The main thing to me is that when somebody comes forward with information or possibly a specimen, they be treated with the utmost respect because they are doing something for the good of the nation. I know that sounds corny. It needs to be public knowledge. To me, having been involved in the wildlife game and also in agriculture all my life, as well as work with veterans, I've developed a perspective on this about the way to handle it. The last thing I want is a bloodbath, but at the same time, to not have a specimen or a series of specimens would be a mistake. And believe me, the wildlife blokes 
really are on side. The people at the top, they listen because and this has happened to me in Tasmania where I've been, well, made privy to various things about thylacines. Mm. And here on the mainland, the head of wildlife, who was set up by the state government to deride what I'd been doing, actually was the fellow who opened our book launch for Snails from the Tea Tree. He said it was an ideal book for an ideal situation written by ideal authors. You know, I'll buy you a beer on that one, Pete. You know, marvellous. Other people have had experiences that you wish you could swap the year of your life for. About 15 years ago, there was a young fellow who was local athletic legend who was training for a mountain bike rally deep in a particular small forest that I know. And, oh, how he could do it. He, I don't know his heart took it, but he would ride up and down and up and down these precipitous slopes. And he stopped breathing heavily and extremely tired. And he had to rehydrate and have a moment's rest. He didn't get off his bike. He, he swallowed a certain amount of water, enough to rehydrate. And then while he's doing this there's a noise off to one side and out came a big black leopard it had one look at him made a snooshing sound and then went back the way it had come it had mistaken his noises for an animal in distress mm. that's my feeling yes. and I, I interviewed this young man but he got on his bike and he rode about seven miles back through bush tracks all up and down to get home to tell his parents and the first thing they did was ring the police who rang me because it meant of course they didn't have to send a man out on the job if they had me on hand i went up there in the same day took him back to the spot we were walking he wasn't exhausted or tired or anything but he got the shivers so badly he was actually shaking when we got to the point where he'd seen the cat mm. now he lives in the country he knows animals, he knows sizes, he knows distances. He was on top of his form physically. All of it added up to, yes, he'd seen something rather distressing. I've got reports like this all over the place. I've just got that much stuff. It's not funny. About 10 days later, about three kilometres from that spot, I was with a friend of mine, an ex-policeman, and we were just scouting, trying to get a handle on that bit of countryside. It was pretty rough country, very hilly. We made our way down to where there was a little stream of running water. And on our way down, we found a kangaroo doe. It was obvious that she'd been hit by a vehicle because her femur was broke. But her head was gone, her upper torso was opened up, and the chest, lungs, and heart were removed. Now, a lot of people said to me, oh, an eagle will do that. Well, I know wedge-tailed eagles pretty darn well. In fact, I used to feed some. They don't open up a carcass like that at all. They pick between the ribs. These had the ribs sheared off and eaten. So what had happened is Predator had taken advantage of this injured kangaroo who clearly hadn't been killed because her blood was dead fresh. She wasn't killed by the car accident, but the driver was an absolute swine and he'd hit her and just kept on going. And she'd had a joey, a big one, in her pouch judging by the way the pouch was mm -hmm. stretched, it had disappeared and it hadn't hopped off into the bush or anything like that. Wouldn't have been capable of that. It had been taken and eaten and she'd been pretty well cleaned up. Well, of course, I set my cameras near it and not another thing, not even a crow came to it before it was putrid. I'm in a unique situation I've, and the best piece of country for these reports. The piece de resistance is only a few kilometres from where that happened. There was a dropping collected by a fisheries and wildlife officer. He also happened to be a cousin of mine. He got it analysed privately. This is before we had access to uh, university laboratories and it was positive for leopard, the DNA in it. That's a clincher. It's all in the book. <laughs>
Well, that brings us on to the Hunt documentary film, yeah. which we want to hear about, because I know the trailer has excited people and you've been involved in that. And can you tell us what's happening about that? Well, excitement plus. We've just done another filming session, not in the bush. This is just the interviews. There's one or two more sets of interviews to do. And these are with the players, Vaughan King, John Turner and myself, giving our personal views. And then we have some still photographs that we have to edit ourselves as, as players. And then Stu Ross, the chap who's directing the film, hopes to have the final edit done before Christmas. But I'd like to see it on primetime TV. TV, if that's possible, but that'll depend on who buys it. And of course, it's a dog eat dog out there. What do you hope the documentary will achieve when it's released? The main thing, as I suppose, is education. The, the possibilities are what it's about. But also, from my own personal point of view, it will generate greater interest in the subject and therefore more people potentially coming forward. And on top of that, it's incredible amount of fun knocking around with all these young chaps who are so enthusiastic and know so much in the technology line. It's absolutely brilliant. It makes me feel young being around them. New recruits and new networks of people can bring different perspectives, can't they, to, to a subject and make breakthroughs, hopefully. One of the things that I've noticed is that there aren't new people wanting to do some serious work in the bush. There's us old stages, of course, who are always going to be there till we drop. But there's young people wanting to do other things of a more artistic line and also uh, people wanting to cash in on it commercially, which is curious because the big cat label has now become a big deal. There mm -hmm. are big cat breweries and big cat wineries, etc., etc. And I'm finding it interesting that they are interested in approaching us with a view to advertising. Yes, it's becoming a brand. Well, that might mean I can afford to get finally a really decent game camera. Can I just tackle you on people's attitudes, Simon? And they, they can be difficult to gauge, I realise, because also people may not always be fully honest with you. But amongst the people who genuinely know there are big cats around because they've seen them and they've had them on their property, do you think people are in different categories of in relation to their tolerance or intolerance or their protectionism or their gung-ho attitude? Can you categorise people's views? Now, when it comes down to stock killing, especially by these big cats, yeah, they don't want to encourage cowboys, but certainly between themselves, they've got their theories and they've also, they're prepared to do something about it. Now, when I showed up with newfangled cameras and so on, they say, look, I want the thing dead. I don't want you to make <laughs> Christmas cards with it. You know, <laughs> that, that sort of yeah. thing. I still feel that the essence, though, of country people is that they, they do adopt a them and us attitude, which is understandable. Mm. When it comes down to the cats, it's, uh, you know, they're prepared to accept them. I was called out to the Western District uh, where there was a lot of stock killing going on. And I mean, this was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen, where you had sheep with their faces bitten off and they were still alive. Turned out it mm. was somebody's, it was a kangaroo hound that had got off its chain and run rampage. The locals eventually sorted it. I didn't do any good, though I was working hard at it. I was there for about uh, five days. And this is in the far west of Victoria in the flat country before South Australia. Now, one of the things about it, though, was that when I was all packed up, ready to leave, I've been staying in a shearing shed, freezing cold in winter, that's for sure. The missus, as they call the lady of the house, asked me in for a cup of tea. 
I went in and sat in the kitchen with her. We were talking about the dog and she says, yeah, it's been caught back on his, his chain. He's clearly used for illegal kangaroo hunting, but, you know, I wasn't going to make a fuss about that. I didn't want to burn my bridges. And then she said, it's a funny thing, though, you know, them panthers never give us a problem. I said, oh, hello, you know. <laughs> I sparked her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And she said, oh, yeah, from time to time, yeah, we see one, especially in the big, uh, what they call fern. It's actually bracken. She says, we see them in the fern. And I said, you sure? She said, absolutely. Seen them closer, especially when we're lambing. They pick up the dead lambs. I said, really? That's interesting. Oh, right. Yeah. I said, uh, if you uh, see one again, would you like to give me a yell and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tootle over with my cameras? And she said, oh, well, she said, yeah, maybe, maybe. Of course, I never heard from her again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but yes. that, that was the sort of the classic way these things can happen in a, in a working farm. People are t- pretty tac- taciturn. But, and, of course, I'm an outsider. It takes a long yes. time to break the ice. Yes, but also if it's not causing you direct impacts and hassle, maybe people do see it as just another creature in the vicinity to get used to. To them, it's like storm damage or fire damage. You know, the old saying, you can't have livestock without dead stock. That's their attitude. Yeah. But also, I think a lot of remote communities don't want to make a lot of fuss. Things would have to be really horrendous before they wanted to ask the state for help and interference and intervention. So not making a fuss is your default position. Oh, it's absolutely right. There is no desire to have anybody else stick their nose in. What would you personally like to happen in, say... 10, 15 years time in Australia when it's better known that some of these animals are actually breeding and adapting okay and naturalising maybe in in the Australian bush. What would you like to happen if you could contrive this future situation? On the one hand, from a scientific perspective, there is a need to know. There's no smoke without fire somewhere. And the consistency of reportage in a court of law would be looked at in a very serious manner. What's occurred, what's happened is a big deal, should such an animal be proven to exist. The proof would have to take the form, from a legal perspective, of specimens, as I've said before. But how that is to be dealt with in this weird climate in relation to ethics, conservation and general wildlife management is a really difficult one. I would be at the very least expecting in 15 years' time, that's a reasonable estimate of time, to have these animals known as to what they are and then to understand their ecology. Now, some introduced animals here are pretty innocuous. Others are seriously bad news. Once they understand what makes these things tick, what makes their population tick, what sort of growth patterns of population are we looking at, then an opinion would be, and hopefully based on fact, and they may be protected, they may not be protected. One of the things that we keep very quiet about in this country is the number of people taken by sharks, by crocodiles, and also the number of dingo attacks that have resulted in either maiming or death. It's, if you like, there's a complete shutdown on the effects of these Mm. things in some areas, only in some areas. Isn't it about risk management? Well, risk management should be a sign on the beach saying, you know, sharks present. That's it. That's your lookout. But people are not very intelligent about such things and they treat it in a ridiculous manner. And it's the same with crocodile warning signs, which are frequently graffitied upon. And when it comes down to dingoes, 
people still in areas where dingoes frequent public camping grounds, people still put out food for them. Any wonder children are mauled. A dingo is a wolf. It's much more intelligent than a dog. I think the problem is that the way people treat these more fierce animals, whether they're predators or, or just potentially creatures that can do harm to humans, if you're anti them, you exaggerate the impacts. And if you're pro them or soft on yeah, them, yeah. you play down the statistics about the impacts. And that's, that's exactly how it works. Now, you or I are not going to get taken by a shark or eaten by a crocodile or mauled by a dingo simply because we're smart enough to avoid that sort of problem and know how to behave. But I have seen the most disgraceful behaviours with people. It's any wonder they get hurt. Look, I used to be a snake catcher for the city of Geelong for about 12 years and I have never seen foolishness the way I've seen foolishness around the snakes that we have here. And our snakes are quite dangerous. We've got three species locally that are all potentially lethal. If you got bitten down the paddock, you're not going to make it back to the house, you know, to hopefully get some sort of help. So you have to be careful around them. I've seen people do terrible things with snakes. One lady, she rang me up to say that she had a tiger snake that wouldn't go away from her garden. And I said, well, don't touch it. Just leave it alone and I'll come around and remove it. Now, tiger snakes have got pretty potent venom. I went round there. I couldn't see the snake, but there was a big splash of water where it was there. And I said, what's going on? What, are you trying to hose it away? She said, no, I threw boiling water on it to make it go away. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Now, you've got an angry tiger snake under the house, half mutilated <laughs> with burns, and my job was to go under the house and get it out. Don't think I didn't get a bit windy about it. I did. But my status yeah. as a snake catcher depended on me getting results. And I was young enough and stupid enough to think that was what really counted. I got it out, poor thing, and just, I had to dispatch it. They mm. just have no idea. And they're the sort of people who are going to leave um, food around camp or let their kid run ahead of them by 50 metres, you know, a three-year-old with a wobbling head. That's mm. asking for disaster. Sure. But of course, it may be very difficult to prove these impacts, whether they're on humans or, or wildlife, because also, although these cats do have favoured ungulate prey bases, they are individuals. And you can get a puma in America that actually has got a knack to get porcupines. So you find its prey base has got a slant towards porcupines and the others all around it are all taking white-tailed deer. And that one is an atypical example. But the porcupines are going to take a hammering in that area. Well, one of the things they need in the US, of course, is more, literally, more puma because the deer the deer situation is completely out of hand over there with white-tailed deer in urban areas. would be so much better if the pumas made a real comeback in the east. They probably will. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm in touch with some of the eastern puma people and, of course, they feel there are more than are recognised. Did you read Bruce Wright's book? Yes, very good. Extremely good. A very credible guy. And of course, he deals with the black ones as well. And I think that in an isolated population, you could have melanistic ones, even though it's very controversial. Yeah. I better ask you the standard question that we ask all the British contributors. What do you think about big cats living in the wild in Britain? You don't have to be diplomatic. You can say whatever you want. I think one, it's highly likely. Two, if people behave responsibly, they could be an asset to the country, as I say, because you've had a placental fauna of large... See, I, I, as an Australian, I think about marsupials and placentals all the time. <laughs> so therefore, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got like two shifting hats. 
But I, when I look at the British situation, I really feel that you've got this potential with what with reforestation, with the uh, resurgence of roe deer especially. I think if people are careful, and I don't think there's any harm in having to be careful, you know, instead of just blithely blundering around the countryside, yeah, because you, you've got rights of way and, and footpaths and so on that people can use mm. that go through all sorts of countryside. It's so long as they are sensible about it and keep their dog in reasonable order and carry go back to the days of carrying a decent staff just in case because that's the one thing that intimidates animals more than anything else is when you start waving a staff around it gives you confidence i know that sounds corny but it's true yes absolutely one of the things about it is yes a slight modification of the way people behave themselves in the countryside you're not likely to have a situation like they had in johannesburg years ago when a, a leopard took up residence under the big sports stage in Joburg and proceeded to eat feral dogs and the occasional drunk. And in fact, the wildlife guys didn't really want to take it away because it was getting rid of all these feral dogs. Living under the bleachers, if you like, you know, in the stadium. Yeah, free pest control, yeah. It's a matter of tolerance. It'll be the same thing here. You know, once we've got proof and we know what we're dealing with, then that's when the ecological studies really have to kick in. That's mm. really important. There'll be many a PhD that'll come out of it. Yes, but it will also need supporting by citizen science. You can only do it with the help of local people. Well, the thing about citizen science is the boffins are all very glad to push it along and laud it and say it's good until you come up with something that they haven't thought of. That's inconvenient, yes. That's another conversation, Rick. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Simon, I think we're going to wrap it up there. That's a very nice few comments on the British situation. So, Simon, thank you so much for all of that really fascinating material and all your historical insights. We wish you well in your future endeavours. We're really looking forward to seeing the Hunt documentary and I'm sure we'll stay in touch. So thank you ever so much, Simon. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure and I am looking forward to seeing the Hunt completely finalised and I'm hoping that everyone gets to see it in the UK and enjoys it. Many thanks, Simon. All the best. Cheerio. Okay, that wraps it up for episode 10. But before we close, just a quick marker on some future episodes. We'll be overseas again fairly soon to hear about what happened when a black panther, possibly it was a black leopard, we don't know, was released on a British guy's land in southern Spain a couple of years ago. And later next year, we plan to hear about the situation in the northeast parts of the United States, where pumas get reported, but are not supposed to be there, officially at least. These occurrences are always interesting to compare to the British picture on big cats. Meanwhile, coming up in our next two episodes, we're heading to the north of England for an episode on County Durham and Gateshead next time, and then an episode on Cumbria and the Lake District. See you next time, everyone. Thanks for listening and take care.